It is uh, really, really interesting to go from preaching to a camera during our entire kind of stay-at-home order season to meeting a couple times in person and enjoying the sweltering hot sun with you and then getting rained out a couple weeks as well. It's a really interesting time, and I think you could probably say that uh, about your life in general. What makes it really interesting just as a church is that even despite circumstances and even despite opposition, even despite some of the obstacles we would normally think of in terms of ministry, our vision has never changed. And I want to share just again as a reminder to you, we're in the season of Come Back Stronger uh, as a church. And, and one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is how do we hold on to that vision? One of the things maybe you've been thinking about, how do I keep living on mission with Jesus? And uh, if you're just joining us online, maybe you've never watched a center service. Maybe this is your very first one. First of all, welcome. I'm really thankful that you're here. Second of all, I understand that for many of us, things like the church vision statement may feel so big and abstract in a time where we're worried about, can we pay the bills? When we're worried about, uh, am I going to make it in my marriage this year or not? Is my, my friend, are they going to make it through this cancer journey they, they're in? Is my grandparent going to make it out of this COVID season intact and whole and well and able to interact with their grandkids? You may be thinking about things like that. But I want to remind you, uh, our vision statement as a church, the very reason we exist, here it is. The center church exists to see zero lives unchanged by Jesus Christ. That's it. If we stopped doing everything else but kept doing that, we would still be successful. We would still be effective. We would still be winning because in our own lives, seeing zero lives unchanged, sometimes including our own, is really the most important. Uh, if you jump with me immediately to Acts 5, I want to ask a question today as a church. How do we hold on to that vision even while everything around us is changing? Maybe you're not feeling that pressure, but there's a good chance that you felt the pressure of your job right now. Maybe there's a good chance you feel the pressure of a relationship. Maybe you feel the pressure just of, of social anxiety and worried about what is school going to look like? What are my kids' school classrooms going to look like? And ironically, we're filming this in the school in which a lot of things are changing for them as well. I want to take you to a specific passage in Acts 5 in which the pressures of the culture and the pressures that they were facing internally were incredibly heightened. You're not alone in those feelings. You're not alone in asking the question, how do we hold on to what's most important? Even as a church, how do we hold on to our vision despite everything changing like crazy? So I want to skip down with you to Acts chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 12. Give you a second to grab your Bible or pull it up on your device, and I'm going to grab it here right here on mine. Here's what the Apostle Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, and which really documents the beginning of the church, here's what he writes in verse 12. I love this. He says, The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. It was kind of a gathering place in, the, in that society. Verse 13, No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, it's an important word, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter, this disciple who had been turned around by God's presence and his power, 
At least his shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Look what happens next, verse 17. This is not how I would expect it, because everything up until this point looks up and to the right. Things are going well. There's momentum in the church, and yet look what happens in verse 17. Then the high priest and all of his associates, which I'm imagining is a pretty, pretty big group at this point, that were in opposition to Jesus, now they're opposing disciples, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, they were filled with what? If you have it right in front of you, read it with me. They were filled with, that's right, jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. The angel says to them in this incredible, miraculous moment, go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Let me ask you a question. If you had been thrown into jail for preaching in the temple and an angel told you to go preach in the temple again, what would you do? That's pressure. That's the question. How do we hold on to our vision even despite everything changing? These apostles had experienced incredible ministry. They'd been around Jesus himself, many of them, and seen the miracles. Even Peter has some kind of supernatural gifting from the Holy Spirit to heal people just with his shadow. Like, that is an insane amount of power. And yet, the human pressures uh, and the culture are pressing in on them and arresting them. They throw them, throw them into jail, and it's only by a miracle that they actually make it out alive. What I think is really interesting, you can keep reading in Acts 5, is that they eventually do go back to preaching the temple. They preach this incredible gospel message. And you think again, uh, they were up and to the right, ministry was good. They were then forbidden to preach, and because they wouldn't stop, they got kicked into jail. An angel breaks them out. They go back to preaching. It probably was permanent, right? Like you think things were going to last for them? Well, skip down to verse 33. Maybe you already skipped ahead and read what happens. Basically, they, they begin preaching, and when the, the religious leaders hear this, verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Do you catch the way Luke is kind of ramping up the intensity of the story? At first, it's just don't preach, and then they preach, and they get kicked into the, in the public jail. Angel breaks them out. They go back to preaching based on the angel's command to them and the Holy Spirit's boldness likely to do that. Well, then they get kind of pressed in from other sides and this religious elite group wants to literally kill these disciples for preaching the mission and the vision that Jesus had for people. But a Pharisee steps up named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, who is honored by all the people he stands up in the Sanhedrin, ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. He actually makes a really good case for why they shouldn't punish and shouldn't kill these fledgling disciples. Verse 40 is the result of that speech. It says, it says that his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Now, imagine the culture in first century Israel. Flogging was not a a normal thing for someone who's preaching Jesus, but in Acts, it becomes very, very normal. There was persecution. And despite the persecution that goes back and forth 
they, they have a sense of urgency about the mission they have. They, they have a sense that they need to hold on to this vision that God has given them. So in response to that, after they order them again, we're going to flog you 39 times with a whip made of tough leather, chips of bone in it. I mean, rocks. It was not a pleasant experience. 39 times these disciples were beaten, stripped of their clothes, and then forbidden, do not preach the name of Jesus anymore. Get out of here. You may face cultural pressure in our world as a Christian. I'm willing to bet you've never faced that level of pressure. But look at their response in verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing. Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Talking about Jesus. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They never stopped. Why? Well, it certainly wasn't because the culture got easier, right? It certainly wasn't because they really enjoyed physical persecution in their lives and that their family didn't start to worry about, are they going to make it out of this next beating or next prison sentence? It wasn't those things. It was urgency about the mission that God had given them to make disciples of all nations, to be a witness to the resurrection in their world. See, here's a key truth that you see throughout the book of Acts, and I think it's a timely truth for you and I today. If you're taking notes, write this down. Urgency creates commitment. Urgency creates commitment. See, often we think it's the other way around. We'd say, well, I got to wait till I'm committed before I really feel passionate about something. I have to wait till I have like a commitment in my bones to do something before I have urgency to go do it. But that's not the story in the Gospels. There was an urgency to the mission that they had, and so they remained committed even despite incredible persecution. I was running with a friend who we overlapped some time in the country of Azerbaijan, which I know is a mouthful to even say, right? It's a small, uh, formerly Soviet Union country sandwiched between the country of Russia, Georgia, Armenia, and Iran. It's really in the middle of nowhere in the Caucasus Mountains. But the dominant faith, I mean, 96, 97% Muslim in this country. My family and I lived there my freshman year of high school. And when we were there, we started to hear stories about how kind of the Christian movement began. And I was running with this friend who was actually on the ground when this Christian movement began. He was a missionary in the very early kind of mid-90s, right as this country was beginning to open up to foreigners. He told me that in 1996, there was around 10 Christians that they knew of in the whole country. You and I could find 10 Christians in Meyer right now if we wanted to. Like, that's not a struggle for us. But in this entire country dominated by the Muslim, by Islam, there were around 10 Christians that they knew of at the time. Fast forward, religious persecution heightened. There were missionaries in our time there who were arrested there were people who were kidnapped out of the back of taxi cabs and robbed at knife point. There were missionaries who gave their lives. There were people who gave up their entire careers here in America to go and to preach the gospel and to be a witness and try to build the disciple-making movement in this country. There was enormous sacrifice. 
And if you look back at the history of the last 15 years in Azerbaijan, religious persecution has not lessened. It's actually grown. More and more Christians are persecuted for their faith today than back in the mid-90s when this missionary movement began there. Yet, there were 10 Christians in 1996. Uh, Rough estimates say there are over 10,000 Christians in Azerbaijan today. I, I know some of those people's names. I know the missionaries who sacrificed reputation, good jobs, triple-digit uh, salaries. Like, I know those people. And yet, in the, in the face of persecution, it was the urgency that there were Azerbaijanis that didn't have the gospel that without someone coming and sharing the good news would never hear it. Urgency creates commitment. Paul and Silas, the people in these stories, they were witnesses to the resurrection. That was really the good news. It was that Jesus died a horrible Roman execution and yet rose from the dead. That the God, that the Father raised Jesus from the dead, and everything he said is true because of that. You may say, Yeah, yeah, John, I mean, I, I live in West Michigan, okay? Or I live wherever you live, whatever state you live, you may think this. Doesn't everyone around me believe in God already? Well, anecdotally and just statistically, no, they don't. And even if they know about God, there's not a life-giving, breathing relationship with Jesus yet. There's not the resurrection power. We're not called to help people just believe and affirm and check a box on a census that they're Christian or they believe God exists or not. We are actually equipped and, and called in the mission that God has given us to make disciples of the risen Jesus. That's our calling let me just praise it this way. I'm willing to bet that you know some Christians who yell at their wives. You know some Christians who at certain weddings drink a lot, uh, way, way, way too much, and get out of control and say things they don't mean. You know Christians who at your college or in your high school that cheat on tests. Here's why I, I say all those things. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything else he said about all those other things I just listed is virtually worthless, it's virtually worthless anyway. But if he did rise from the dead, then everything else he said is true. And you and I as disciples of Jesus are first and foremost witnesses. That, that message, that power, it, it should create urgency among us as his followers. Some of you know that I have a very weird obsession with Chick-fil-A. Those who are watching on the tech team, you know that this is true, right? So uh, I, I have a lot of meetings at Chick-fil-A. Now, it's definitely slowed down because they're, for the most part, closed up. You can do drive-in. And so I've done that a couple times. But our, our men's discipleship group, uh, group of us from church, actually Kevin who's playing here, we're in a group together. Uh, we've been studying the book of Acts together, and we've been meeting in the Chick-fil-A parking lot. What's really interesting to me is that I, we would have had a lot of reasons, including not sitting outside in 95-degree heat or whatever it's been the last couple months here in Michigan. Uh, but we, were, we had an urgent mission because at the end of every time, we didn't just study the Bible. We didn't just talk about how things are going. But we always pray for someone in our life who is far from God, who we urgently want to see come to Jesus. And Kevin has shared with me over the last couple of years um, he has someone in his life named Aaron, a family member who is not walking with Jesus yet. And together we have prayed for over a year for Aaron to come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Why do we keep doing that years later? 
sitting in the parking lot of Chick-fil-A. It's certainly not because it's comfortable, and it's certainly not because we're seeing just a ton of crazy miracles and results in Aaron's life. It's because we have an urgent mission to make disciples. And despite the cost, we're committed to it. Urgency, friends, creates commitment. Urgent faith makes a choice at work that cares for our employees but loses profit. Urgent faith invites someone to church. They say no, but they know I care about their eternity. That's happened to me, by the way, as your pastor. I've invited people who are just like, nah, not interested. But they know that I care about their eternity. I care about their, their life spiritually. Urgent faith gives bonus checks away to a hurting neighbor family. Urgent faith invites the outcasts at work to church on Sunday mornings and brings the sunscreen, right? Like, it is the kind of life that just models a different sort of behavior. And every time someone asks the question, why are you doing that? Our reason is because of Jesus. Our reason is because Jesus rose from the dead and it changes our entire lives. Let me be real clear. I think scripture is, is really clear on this as you read through Acts Friends, if this isn't our heartbeat, if urgent faith, seeing our priorities shift from being about us to being about them, those on the outside of of walk with Jesus, frankly, God will give our resources to someone else whose it is. See, the Jews were stewarded with the message of God to be a blessing to the nations. But if we, as we read in Acts 15, God decided, I'm going to include Gentiles in on this. The people who are formerly on the outside, they're actually needed for the mission inside. They're, they're needed. In Acts 15, they join together uh, as a pastor. And I look around our community. I meet with pastors in our area. What you may not know is that there are churches who close their doors every day, and their resources get reallocated to other churches who have urgent faith. Let that sink in for a moment. I really, really believe that God would not let Center Church exist for another 15 years if culturally we just stopped caring about people who are far from God. I really believe he'd find a way to close our doors and give all our resources to someone else who really, that is their heartbeat. But I sense in so many of you on the other side of this camera watching this live stream, maybe you just joined us. I sense for so many of us that that is our heartbeat. And God wants to do that work in us. One of the coolest uh, moments for me in COVID was uh, actually an email I received. It's funny because over the last number of years, and you know this if you're a part of the church or even just as you watch the story from afar, is that Center Church was planted about 2006, in the fall of 2006. Some of you were there for those first couple Sundays. As you journey through the life of our church, you know that there's been a lot of ups and downs. There's been a lot of leadership changes and transitions and The one thing that has been constant is that we've never had a permanent building. That's been pretty much the same. Like that's been relatively stable for us. Sure, we've moved a couple rental places around and hopped around from school to school and community center to other environments. But there's never been an actual place in which people could go to on Tuesday night and see the sign for the center church. It just hasn't happened yet. Some of you know that we've prayed real specifically as, as church leaders and even invited you into some seasons of prayer over the last couple of years around that. And I've prayed fervently for this just in my own life, just 
God, if this is our next step, and we really do sense it is, would you open up some physical and spiritual doors for us to actually step into that next season? So fast forward, it's like the middle of April, uh, late May. We're all working from home. Stuff is locked down. Going to Meyer feels like an adventure. <laughs> and I send this email out to uh, a broker who does real estate in our, in our area and just said, hey, we've been in touch before about some buildings. I know none of those have really panned out. Just curious, like because of COVID and everything that's happening with retail, is there any kind of weird spaces that are available right now that you just say, oh, maybe a church could work here? I send the email off. I don't really honestly think much of it. I was like, there's probably not. It's like the middle of the spring and the world is just in a weird spot. Well, he emails back within like a day and says, yeah, actually there is. There's a place that is very, very unique uh, that would actually probably be able to fit a church of your size and even have some room for growth. And so we email back and forth, fast forward to June, fast forward to even a couple weeks ago. I, I can't share all the details with you yet or even kind of let you in on the process yet just because it's so fresh, not have a lot of answers. But we've done a couple walkthroughs of this facility. Uh, Blake, Brian, and myself, we serve on our leadership team. Some people from our church have uh, kind of started to begin and pray praying through this, discerning this. And uh, again, I have something to bring to you other than this really is, as a leader, the very best potential for a more permanent facility for a church that I've seen in the last three, four years. I don't know what God is doing in that. Maybe he's just testing our faith. Or maybe the next step is a lot closer than we think. It's the middle of June. Again, I'm checking my email. God apparently works through my Gmail account. I don't know how that works, but I'm checking my email, and I, I get a, uh, an email from our, our finance person, and she basically says, hey, I just want you to know, like, there was a $30,000 gift that came in, in the mail, and I'm not sure what to do with it. Can you come to my office immediately? And I was like, wow, I don't get those emails every Monday. So, I, I basically leave the meeting I was in. I was like, I got to figure this out. So I, I go to her office. She's like, I'm just double checking. Uh, we received a check for $30,000 from this person. I need you to follow up and just make sure they didn't move a decimal around. Like they didn't actually hit an extra zero or something. I said, yeah, sure, no problem. Uh, bar, mind you, I've never received that amount of money as a pastor for a church ever. Maybe you are familiar with that in your business. That's just not happened to me yet. So Look into it, and it turns out it's totally legit. This person just felt like God pressed it on their heart to give $30,000 to our church, uh, no strings attached, just saying, I really believe God has led me to give this. Use it however you want. Immediately, I, I start to connect the dots. I'm like, God, are you doing something with a facility? Are you doing something here? Like, am I supposed to pay attention to this? Because uh, $30,000 gifts are great, and it's an awesome start. A building potential conversation, even talking about what it looked like in the next year to move into something in which we get to put some paint on the walls and put a sign up and things that we just haven't really ever done. And I, I, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about how important it is to, to, despite how those things play out, despite how they pan out, to let those be opportunities for us, church, to have urgent faith to pursue those opportunities, not with, wow, we finally arrived, but look how far we have to go. Look how many people we could potentially reach through these things. Because here, I just wrote this list down this morning as I was praying about this message. When I hear building, when most of you hear building, here's what I think of. 
after-school programs for kids in our community who don't have a safe place at home. Meeting space for community events. Hosting weddings and funerals for those who can't afford them. I think about financial planning workshops for newlyweds. I think about holding midweek events for our students and our kids and our adults and workshops and how to grow in scripture, how to grow in prayer, the things that really make us disciples in this crazy changing time. I think about being an extension site for local schools. Maybe they don't have the resources to to give kids Wi-Fi or socially distance in their space. We could be a space they come. I think about English classes for refugees in our community who are far from God and still really don't have a connection in our community because they just don't speak the language. But let me speak for just a moment as your pastor. If we get a facility and we get all those things and we have the most incredible center church space that we've ever had, but we don't possess urgent faith, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. That there is something much, much greater wants to, God wants to do because urgency creates commitment for the future. More than that, I, I would say the next level of that is that urgency ultimately, it creates the future. That maybe on the other side of these conversations, there are future pastors, male and female, who step into the gaps in our communities because of our commitment to urgent faith. Maybe there are missionaries who sent or sent out to places like Azerbaijan or countries in South America or Asia or, or uh, different parts of Africa in which the gospel is not yet touched there. And we send out people rather than just try to gather as many people as we can. Uh, urgency, friends, creates commitment. That's true in your life personally. That's true in, in my life spiritually. It's true in your life spiritually. And so uh, if we're going to turn the corner on this, I really think there's two next steps. Maybe, you're, again, you're watching and you're just processing all of this. And I want to give you two kind of immediate takeaways. I want to ask you two questions, and maybe if you're taking notes or, or just jotting stuff down in your phone for the future. First question is this. I want you to ask today or this week, who is in my circle? Back to the story of Kevin and Aaron. Aaron is in Kevin's circle. And the desire Kevin has to pray for that and see uh, that young man come to faith in Jesus, they're because there's, there's an urgency there and it's created commitment. But you got to ask the question, who's in my circle? Who has God given me influence over? For some of you, that's just your family. Others of you, it's an entire department or division. Maybe you're a team lead at the place you work. And you've got influence. You can say some things. You can make a difference. You can begin to pray for those people to come to Jesus. Maybe you have entire companies or, or sales team or relationship uh, with, a, with another professor or another teacher that you can use. Who is in your circle? And then the second step of that is take spiritual responsibility for them. Believe truly, just like Paul and Silas experienced in Acts 5, God has put me here for a reason. And even though there's going to be opposition to that, and Paul and Silas can attest to all of that, we are going to decide, I'm going to decide right now to take spiritually response. I'm going to take responsibility spiritually for the people in my circle. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to be radically generous towards them. I'm going to do things that cause them to ask, why are you doing this? And I get to say, it's because I follow Jesus. It's because I just, I believe that everyone's life would be significantly better, richer, more satisfied, more fulfilled, rescued 
if they came into contact with a relationship with Jesus. Because friends, it's just, it's not enough to be nice. It's not enough to wait for our culture to decide where they're going to land when it comes to Jesus and Christianity and wanting the kingdom of God without the king, as Mark Sayers, a pastor and theologian, often says. It's, it's not those things. It's going to be when you and I decide this mission is urgent. And, and I need to know, number one, who's in my circle? And number two, uh, can I take spiritual responsibility for them? Because ultimately, Ephesians 6, Paul tells us, this is spiritual battle we're in. That the world among us is trying to press in and change the people of God into something that maybe we were never designed to be. And I think this season for many of us has clarified that it starts with us. It starts with us possessing an urgent faith. I want to close with a statistic. Uh, some of you know I love numbers. And I, I want to close with just this, this stat that really for me has framed this conversation. It's a great way to think about some of our next steps. I get that we're online, and so this, this is a little bit different than maybe you anticipated when you woke up this morning. But as you think about the next couple months in our church, the next couple months, months of this culture, obviously we want to be praying together for some of the needs we have, whether that's clarity for a building or hiring a worship pastor or figuring out what do students look like in the fall. There's some needs. But here's the stat. I want you to think about this and maybe even write it down somewhere. You'll see it again. Over 50% of people in your circle... Not like, oh yeah, I went to church for the past 10 years, I just haven't gone for a month, and then you invite me back. Over 50% of people in your circle would respond positively to an invitation to church from you. Over 50%. That's certainly been my experience. I've had some no's, I've had some yeses over the years. That's probably been your experience. But over 50% of people. But here's what I want to say next. That doesn't matter. Here's why. Because the X factor is you and I. We, we know the statistics. We know that there are people in our life who are far from God. And yet, until we possess an urgent faith, buildings don't matter. Stats don't matter. Church signage just doesn't matter. Until we possess an urgent faith, uh, we've not really fully experienced what God has for us. Here, I want to pray for us. Because I know that in this season of life, when everything feels rapidly changing, when you're trying to figure out what is school going to look like for my kids, maybe you're a teacher and you're like, I don't even know what school is going to look like for me. Maybe financially there's pressure. Maybe you're trying to raise a newborn in this season. Just There's a lot of weirdness. Here's what I want to remind you is that you can start today by asking a simple question, who's in my circle? And what would it look like to take responsibility for them spiritually. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are present. We thank you that you are powerful. We thank you that even despite some of the challenges we face personally, even as a community, the center church, as we're trying to figure out what does the future look like, we just come before you, Holy Spirit, 100% open to what you want to do. As we've journeyed through the series and we're going to keep journeying, I think about the, the power of what we studied a few weeks ago, of just of prioritizing prayer over our own plans. And so, God, we lay our plans down at your feet. I think about the importance of just prioritizing Monday over Sunday 
and how so much of our life is spent outside of the walls of a church building, and we need you there. We need your presence there. We need you to fill us with boldness and courage to step out and to take spiritual responsibility for those in our circle. Think about the importance just culturally of, of really prioritizing being a bridge builder, not, not being really good at identifying barriers and divisions and, and how we're different, but actually looking at, God, how you've wired us to be people of reconciliation, ambassadors for you, whether that's online in our Facebook comments or if it's in person, our conversations at work or at school or at the gas station. We need your boldness and we need your grace to fill us to be bridge builders. And finally today, God, I just confess up front, I need your power to help me to truly prioritize those outside instead of just my own preferences and comfort. Because there are people in my life whose lives would be significantly better, richer, fuller, satisfied, whole, if they were walking in relationship with you. So Holy Spirit, do that work in us. Give us that urgent faith. We pray it all in the strong and the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.